the rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the Vegan Fan Guard, a show about all things from the perspective of two revolutionary vegan women. I'm Mexi. And I'm Maureen. And today we'll be talking about the trope of competition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how that plays out in our own lives and how that affects politics and economics and the whole bit. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, our perception of absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, so we're going to start with our own personal experiences, um, like with this trope of competition growing up. And then we're going to get into some theory and talk about economics and, um, I guess, philosophy a bit as well. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to finish off with a discussion of why cooperation rather than competition might very well be the rule that governs nature and that makes us thrive as a species and that also makes other species in the animal kingdom thrive because we're told this idea that competition is the natural rule of rule of law do you say rule of law uh yeah i guess so i don't, I don't personally say it <laughs> <laughs> um but how cooperation because because i feel like we we're taught to see cooperation as this thing that's almost unnatural mm-hmm. um and that shouldn't be necessarily encouraged because it limits our freedom, but how it's maybe competition that's much more orchestrated than cooperation. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, all of these things are learned behaviors and like it's kind of drilled into our heads as children, you know, compete, compete, compete. Um, You know, there are winners and losers in life and that's just how it is. It's just like, I hate that argument too. That's just how it is. <laughs> that's just how it is. It's like, well, that's just how it is because we're making it that way. Um, but we can make it anyway. Yeah, I was certainly taught that that was the way it is throughout my whole childhood. I remember my father used to tell me, you know, life's a competition and you got to be, you have to be the best. You have to win if you want to be the best. And um, that's, yeah, it's unfortunate, but life isn't fair. And at the end of the day, everything is about competition, you know, down from he he also used to make this argument all the time that life started out as a competition, because I was amongst like, the millions of different sperm that could have, <laughs> you know, they could have fertilized the egg, but that my sperm was the one that fertilized it so that everything down to our very conception is fundamentally competitive. That is such a weird thing to say. (laughs) Yeah, I really, I believed that in every aspect of my life, I had to be the best. And then that idea was very much reaffirmed to me as it is with all of us in school and with our grades. And actually in France, they do it's like particularly competitive because every time we receive a grade, we also know every single other grade that the people in the class have received and like our relative ranking within it. Yeah. And even in our report cards, we're given, or, you know, we're told like we're fifth or we're sixth or we're like 28th in the class. Yeah. There is a literal ranking of your worth. That's so sad for the kid who's like very last. 
I know. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, for the kid who's like second or third, it's like there's so many parents that refuse to um, give their kid any praise if they don't come in first. And actually, the the American system is very different than that. Or when I went to when I switched from French school to U.S. school when my family moved to California when I was little, it was really different. And I remember we went to this very liberal sort of hippy dippy school where we were just constantly encouraged and looking back on it, it was actually really great. But for me, it seemed really strange. Like I always, I'll always remember my first day of art class when we all painted, you know, we all had like two hours of art class and then we had to go around and show people our artwork and everyone in the class had to say a compliment about what they liked about our artwork. And I remember this was the most foreign thing to me at the time. And I thought it was completely ridiculous because I had been in the French system that believes that if you compliment or encourage kids, it's going to make them complacent and overly arrogant. So you're just always sort of teared to shreds all the time. How is it in Canada? Um, I don't know. I guess it's kind of like a happy medium. Um, I mean, I went to gifted school, so there was even that. I mean, like in third grade, we were all tested to see if we were gifted or not. and I was, so I went to like gifted school. Gifted little Mexi. Gifted little Mexi. So, um, so yeah, actually like the gifted program was actually really cool because it was like a different way of teaching. And so, yeah, we did have a lot of space to like explore whatever we wanted to explore. And we had a lot of space to be creative and yeah, yeah. I feel like it was like a good environment, but at the same time, I don't know. I mean, I always did kind of well, like, or I always did really well. So I don't really know what it would be like for someone who, you know, wasn't doing that well or like needed extra help, especially being surrounded by like a group of like gifted kids. It probably was Mm -hmm. very difficult because people had people, people were gifted in different things. So it's like, you could be gifted in music or in like gym, like fitness or something um but then you're sitting there in like gifted math classes right so right you had to be gifted at everything well you didn't have to but like but if you were gifted in something that wasn't math or English or something right then you'd obviously struggle in those areas um but yeah I mean like even despite that like I remember in high school it was definitely in high schools where it became very competitive because it was like you have to get these grades um, in order to get into university. And so it was like, we were all very much aware that we were competing against our fellow students to get a spot in university. And then it was very like, if you don't get into university for the right program, then you're not going to make it in life. You're not going to get anywhere. And, you know. Yeah. Um, I work in like college counseling, essentially help French kids who want to go study abroad. Um, So I'm really in the thick of that, like kids needing to compete with their peers and also this incessant need to market every single thing that you do in your life. So Mm -hmm. everything from like the extracurricular activities they practice to, you know, what they're going to do in 10th and 11th in their 10th and 11th grade summer like where they're going to volunteer um 
is entirely based on what is going to look good on a college application. And actually, um, I work for this one company that um, writes personal, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can say this on air, but um, that writes personal statements or that helps kids write personal statements for the UK. And they're literally asked, you know, do you have a disability? Are you, do you have any health complications? Because then that is going to go into the personal statement as, you know, something that has helped them um, overcome tremendous adversity because they are really driven and they are, you know, either competitive or very Mm self-determined. So it's like, yeah, I see these kids just trying to make like mental loops all the time Mm -hmm. to figure out how every bit of their existence can be like monetized and marketable for universities. And they're like 17, you know, it Mm -hmm. it really breaks my heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then just wait until you get even older and like get out into the job market, et cetera. I mean, like I'm the same way in academia, you have to have this like, well, I hate to say personal brand. Um, because but you do <laughs> yeah you have to have like a personal brand that's sellable in a one minute pitch or something yeah so like my ex-partner was a marketer and so he was always talking to me about like because I just wanted to do my work like I just wanted to research and put out really quality work and information and reach people and I was never thinking about any of that in terms of oh I'm gonna make a big name for myself I'm gonna like I'm gonna make it rich I was always thinking like I want to do this because this is very important and like I feel like I have the skills to do this so I'm going to do it. But then um he was always like you know if you want to reach more people the best way is to build up your own personal brand like if you make yourself, you know, a well-known kind of branded person who's an expert in this then you'll have more opportunity to speak to people, you'll have more opportunity to get like speaking engagements and etc and so he was always like encouraging me to do that and so I'm like ugh, but I just I just can't stand that and it's all it's also like for me in academia I'm very aware that like soon I'm going to be finished my PhD and then I'm going to be looking for jobs and I'm very you know cautious like I that's why like nothing is under my real name like my online presence is not under my real name because I'm like, is that going to be something that's a plus for me? Like, is that kind of, is that personal brand going to be something that people want to hire me for? Or is it going to be um, a hindrance or is it going to be like a liability? You know what I mean? And so I just absolutely hate having to think about like, okay, like this podcast we're recording. I'm like, if someone finds this and listens to it, are they going to be impressed that I put this together? Or they're, are they going to be like, oh, I don't want this, this like person on in my fa- right, faculty. Too difficult. <laughs> they have too many opinions. Yeah. Well, I mean, like in, in academia, it's like, I'm sure they would appreciate me discussing the trope of competition, but also it's like, am I being too casual for them? Uh, do, do they not really like my online brand or personality? You know what I mean? It's just like, I don't, I don't want to think about all that. I just want to do my work. I just want to put out things that I'm passionate about and that will help the world not because I need a job or need to make it rich or need to like, you know what I mean? I don't like to have to think about what's on my Twitter, what's on my whatever. So that's why I made a whole new Twitter that's not under my real name because I'm like, 
you know, that's where I want to be me. And on that Twitter, I have like 2000 something followers and I get a lot of engagements with everything that I put out. And then under my real name, which is like my academic Twitter, which I hardly ever post on, I get like no, nobody cares about that. Nobody even looks at it. I get like zero likes. There's like no followers. So I'm just like, when I'm actually myself, I have much more of an impact in real life. But when I try to like be this like perfectly manicured, well-branded academic girl people don't care you know what I mean and I'm just like I'm not in this for myself I'm in this for you know the good of the world and everyone else so I'm like why yeah why wouldn't I just be myself if that's what's getting a greater you know greater engagement but like most employers most universities I feel like wouldn't really want that I think that walking the line between like being marketable and being genuine is really difficult. And that's something that I had to think a lot about when I graduated college and after I went on to do a research grant for a year. And then after that, I was like thinking that I wanted my job to be one that makes a difference and, you know, potentially, you know, work in NGOs or maybe work in journalism um, anyway, those were all ideas that were and are still on my radar to some extent. But then I realized it was so, so difficult. I was living in New York City at the time to get a job that paid a living wage working for an NGO, for example, mm-hmm. that I would expend like, all my time, you know, working this one job 40 plus hours a week, perhaps also having to work a waitressing job and then on the side not be able to do any of the things that, you know, I thought were more fun, like make YouTube videos or start a blog or write a book or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I made the decision to, uh, I wouldn't say sell out, but do a job that was that allowed me to sustain myself financially. And I'm obviously very privileged to have found a way to do that. Um, Not that I'm like rolling in gold at all, but (laughs) I, you know, am able to get by and the job that I have has nothing to do with what I'm actually like socially invested in and passionate about. And, you know, I, I decided to make that trade off and I am grateful that that trade-off didn't look like me working in finance or something like that. You know, I'm I'm still doing something that I find very rewarding in the sense that I can interact with so many kids on a person-to-person like basis and I really like that. But at the same time, you know, it's not a job that I believe in. I don't believe in standardized tests. I don't really believe in our education system and how kids have to market themselves. Um but, you know, it does allow me a little bit more flexibility to do other cool things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I yeah. And I also I don't think that veganism uh, or social justice can really be profitable or monetizable. So I was like, I'd, I'd rather, I think, just work for something completely separate than fool myself by trying to work for, you know, like a vegan company that I might not like fully that my idea my ideas might not fully align with them and feel like I'm making a greater difference because I don't I don't know if at the end of the day I would be making a greater difference if my passion for social justice is completely channeled into something like for profit Mm -hmm. yeah for sure and that's actually something we're going to talk about later on to the like liberalization of like 
NGOs. Mm-hmm. And why that sucks. Yeah, it really sucks. Yeah, I was also looking into working at an NGO if I didn't get an academic job and like... Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. I what mean, happened to that? Well, I'm still looking into it. Um, but yeah, the salaries don't look that great. <laughs> yeah. Girl, I mean, they look fine. Like some of them look fine, but like living in Toronto, I mean, the housing market, that's a whole other story. This is getting off topic, but yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So just competition in all aspects of life, all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. It's exhausting. It's fucking exhausting. Yeah. But don't you think that competition on some level makes us free, Mexi? Because then we have the agency to compete in whatever way we want. <laughs> um, that, that almost sounded that like a segue. serious question. That sounded like a serious question, actually. And I was like, I know. girl. I feel like my sarcasm is very serious sometimes. Yeah, no, that's that was great. Um, but I'm like, I think our listeners are going to be like, whoa, did Marie mean that? Um, anyway. <laughs> Yeah, let's get into freedom. Let's get into the trope of freedom. Um, So yeah, I really wanted to talk about this. Whenever I think about competition, I think about this idea of liberty and freedom and free markets. Free markets make us freer people. Um, And just this idea that under free market conditions, competition will be the force that leads to the most efficient allocation of goods and services. And capitalism will be this well-functioning, well-oiled machine or closed circuit, which will be efficient and, of course, mutually beneficial to everyone involved. Because as we all know, capitalism is nothing if not voluntary transactions between people who both get better off after every transaction. So, yeah, just essentially this idea of freedom associated with free markets. Um, Essentially, the freedom here is the freedom to compete. So it's the freedom for every individual to buy and sell in the market. And one's ability to do that rests on one's ability to compete in that same market. So this whole American-style discourse of freedom which is really prominent in Canada as well. And I'm like, basically it's like spreading all over the globe. Um, But this whole idea is extremely narrowly defined because it's like, you don't have the freedom to pursue your interests that might not be lucrative. Like you don't have the freedom to actually pursue your passions as you were just talking about, because you need to put food on your plate. And so you have to just basically get something that will pay the bills. Um, Right. Essentially, you have freedom to starve. Right. You have... If you, yeah. if you choose it. That's exactly it. Like, you don't have freedom from wage labor. You have to do that. Um, and that, that might not be something that's even your passion or your skill or whatever, but you need that money. Um, so you don't have the freedom to live your life, you know, free of worry about putting food on your plate or, you know, the freedom of access to healthcare, education. You have the freedom to compete. And that is all. And if the cards are stacked against you and like structurally you're constrained in the amount of capital that you'll be able to access and accrue, then it's really no competition at all. You know, like, um, yeah, it's like you're free to try, but if and when you fail or like maybe fail isn't the right word, but, you know, the majority of the population will not actually make it into the capitalist class. So you're free to try. But no one will be there for you at all when you don't 
succeed or when you know what I mean you'll have nothing to fall back on and that's like the neoliberal thing of like we're gonna pull back on education and healthcare and everything so go nuts competing and if you fail then it's gonna be like doubly worse for you and also this myth of competition is really governed by a politics of fear because we are instilled with the fear that if we don't compete and we don't come out on top, then we are going to fail and we're going to die, essentially. So I've been thinking a lot about, um, I've recently moved to a neighborhood that has, it's a very strange neighborhood because on the one hand, it's very like yuppie and there's quite a bit of like, of the population that is affluent or like up and coming sort of. But then there is also a whole chunk of the population in my neighborhood that's very, very poor. And I've just been so struck by the misery that I pass from the subway station to my house every single day and all the homelessness and how it's just, how it's so sad and how as human beings, we want to empathize and we want to be compassionate because it's just so horrible to see these people lying out in the cold. Um, but how we are like conditioned to constantly have to shut down that response or bypass it in order to like mm -hmm. get home or get to work and not completely break down and lose it. Um, and I've also been thinking, yeah, I've just been thinking a lot about how completely unnatural that is to our like state of <laughs> state of being mm -hmm. um, and how that's like robbing us of a certain humanity. And I sort of feel like either you become like really depressed um, by this, the crumbling state of the world, either you become like, like a sociopath that has to shut off their reactions to empathy all the time. Um, I apologize if it's, if the term sociopath is ableist, um, I'm, uh, yeah, you guys should comment on what might be a better <laughs> term for that. Um, but but I, I, hopefully the listeners see what I what I mean. And also, I've been thinking about how all these people on their way to work or on their way home, like passing by all of this misery and ha like having to make the constant choice to not do anything about it. Um, it reaffirms in their mind this idea that competition is like the main driving force of their life because if they don't succeed in competition and if they don't come out on top, then literally they're going to die in the street and no one is even going to turn back to help them. And there's no social structure to make sure that they get good health care and they get good housing and they get food and education, etc., as is evidenced by the fact that so many people are knee deep in misery and that, yeah, there is no net to catch them. So I think that this competition myth is constantly perpetuated by the reality that we see neoliberalism has created. I completely agree. And yeah, it just kind of makes me sick the way that people talk about, you know, people living on the street and yeah, definitely part of like shutting off that empathetic response is, you know, making excuses. And those excuses are typically like, oh, well, they just, they, they didn't compete properly. You know what I mean? Or like, oh, <laughs> I don't know, they're just lazy or they um, do too many drugs and 
you know, or they have mental problems. Like a lot of people just say like, oh, well, people on the street just have mental problems. And it's like, mm, you can't just excuse what's going on. You know what I mean? Like, but people have to do all these things just to make themselves feel all right with this horrible thing that they're passing every day. And like, you know, telling themselves, well, I don't, I don't want to give them anything because they're just going to misspend it or they're going to spend it on booze or drugs or something. Right. So it just really reinforces this idea that you're there because you deserve to be there. And so I don't have to feel bad about it. And I don't have to feel like morally conflicted or responsible to do something to help you, (laughs) you know? Right. But I, and, and absolutely. And on that, like piggybacking off of that point, I also feel that it's sort of cruel that we have this cross to bear all the time. Like when we're, when we're seeing homelessness, um, because it's just this chronic individualism where, you know, either like the people are on the street because they supposedly deserve it or the people are, you know, that they're still on the street because passerbyers are not um, sufficiently generous, which I do. Of course, there's something to be said about that and about like the righteousness that wealthy individuals feel for being wealthy a lot of the times. But I also feel like, you know, this is such a symptom of like structurally how devastating and harmful neoliberalism is and the fact that all of our social welfare policies have been completely eroded and all of our like mm-hmm. welfare programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes I almost feel like, God, I'm like mad that I have to make this like choice not to help everyone that I can all the time. Like I'm, I'm mad that like we as humans trying to go about our lives and like make ends meet, like have to be confronted constantly to, I don't know. I feel like this is sounding a little, this is coming off sort of wrong because obviously I'm not saying like people who have money or who have a roof over their head, like, oh, it's so hard because they have to feel so guilty. Um, because that's not what I'm saying at all. But yeah, what I'm saying is that that misery is symptomatic of like, of broader processes. Um, right. An erosion of like, yeah, just this horrible economic system more so than like people's individual generosity. Yeah, no, that's a very good point because yeah, I mean, like I give to homeless people all the time. I try to give generously, but like, again, I mean, I have the privilege to be able to do that. Not everybody can afford to give everything that they have to homeless people when they see them. And also this me giving to homeless people is not going to solve the problem of homelessness. Like this is not something that we can solve on an individual level anyway. Like this is a society wide, you know, political economic problem Mm -hmm. that requires a society wide political economic solution. So it's like, just kind of beats you down to be like, yeah, what can I really, really what can I do here? You know? So it really, really does. Sometimes I think like if I descended on earth for the first time and I, actually saw what we are all doing to each other and like what the situation is like what what would I think like Mm -hmm. sometimes I literally have this thought where I'm like is everyone seeing this is everyone seeing this person like begging in the subway like about you know with no shoes when it's cold outside and about to like die of starvation like hello wake up Mm -hmm. are we you know Mm -hmm. I know it's like nobody can really empathize and like put themselves in that situation you know right so anyway um yeah so I just wanted to 
talk a bit about Harvey and Polanyi with respect to this whole like competition, freedom, etc. So yeah, so David Harvey and Carl Polanyi are two of my very favorite authors. If you haven't checked out Carl Polanyi's um, The Great Transformation, you definitely should. And I'll put Harvey's um, A Brief History of Neoliberalism in the show notes. But they talk about, you know, um, the meaning of freedom itself becomes really contradictory and fraught um, in this neoliberal environment or even just in a capitalist economy. Um, so Polanyi notes that there are two kinds of freedom, one good and the other bad. So good can be like freedom of conscience, freedom of association, etc. I'm not going to say freedom of speech because the way that that's been <laughs> co-opted by the reactionaries is just terrifying. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the, you know, those are the good freedoms, but among the bad freedoms, which are prevalent in this society are the freedom to exploit one's fellows, the freedom to make inordinate gains without commensurable service to the community, the freedom to keep technological inventions from being used for public benefit, or the freedom to profit from public calamities secretly engineered for private advantage, which we're seeing more and more and more. So, you know, planning and control start to become attacked as a denial of freedom. So free enterprise and private ownership are declared to be essentials of freedom. No society built on other foundations is said to deserve to be called free. So the freedom that regulation creates is denounced as unfreedom. So the justice, liberty, and welfare that regulation offers are decried as a camouflage for slavery, which becomes so incredibly problematic, right? So the idea of freedom denigrates into a mere advocacy of free enterprise, which means the fullness of freedom for those whose income, leisure, and security need no enhancing, and a mere pittance of liberty for the people who may in vain attempt to make use of their democratic rights to gain shelter from the owners of property. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I just thought that was such an astute quote. And then Harvey, Harvey goes on to say that we operate almost without knowing it with some partial debased and in the end imprisoning concepts of liberty and freedom that merely support the status quo and more deeply instantiate capital's warped vision of human rights and social justice. So, yeah, again, like with relation to like people who are living on the street. Yeah, it's like what freedom are they really enjoying? You know what I mean? They... <laughs> the freedom to not be able to access any of these things, even though it's available to them, you know, it's like freedom of choice, but you don't have capital to access it. So what's your freedom again? Freedom to beg. Yep. And inequality in this case, it's not just that like poor people have, you know, quote unquote freedom to beg, but it's also normalized as just the other side of the coin of competition it's almost inequality seen as this virtuous thing where well the winners um are there because they outsmarted everyone and because they're the most efficient and so they sort of they deserve to be there and on top of that not only do they deserve to be there but they deserve to stay there because they're creating all of this wealth that's going to trickle down to mm. the poorest people you know and the poorest most incapable people And then, um, you know, so that is their reward, but also just, yeah, inequality, like poverty and people living in the street, it's like, well, 
it's almost seen as this triumph of this really um this really efficient system that just upholds the good and weeds out the bad and just those people happen to be the bad that were weeded out um or they must there's almost the sense that they must just be there for a reason right we we don't know what the reason is and the reasons are diverse and everyone has their own life story but like come on you know since we live in this free market where if people really wanted to try and to succeed they could then i don't know what the reason is but there must be one for the fact that they're stuck at the bottom Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like we could do an entire episode about the trick of trickle down economics (laughs) yes yes um but yeah i think that feeds in well to the idea of like equality of opportunity and how it's assumed that, I mean, the reason why people think that, oh, yeah, if you're at the bottom, there must be a reason that you're there is because it's assumed that everyone has equal opportunity to compete in this, quote unquote, free market. I think we can do a whole other episode on the quote unquote free market as well, because that's just, oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, just this idea that yeah, well, everyone has equal opportunity. Why don't they? I was having a freaking argument with my Uber driver the other night going to this wedding about this. And that was basically his response. Like, well, why don't they have an opportunity? And I was like, are you kidding? Like, do you like, is this something that people really are thinking? You know what I mean? It's just like, it's pretty well documented that where or like the socioeconomic standing that you're born into highly affects what opportunities you will have in your life like if you're born into a family that can't you know first of all if you're born into a poor neighborhood that has you know not the best school not the best education um if you can't afford good food then children are going to school without food in their bellies maybe if they're lucky they will have some kind of you know state sponsored school lunch or something like that but again <laughs> neoliberalism it's you know seeking to cut that away um so yeah you're going to school with no food in your belly um you're living in a neighborhood where, you know, there's crime, etc. Maybe your parents are working two jobs. They don't have time to help you with homework. Maybe you have to work to help support your family because otherwise you cannot pay rent, which is increasingly a problem. It just keeps going up and up in basically everywhere. Um, so I'm like, really? You know, and then you can't afford higher education. You're too poor to be able to get a loan because they'll deny you. You have bad credit. You know, it's like, are, really? Everyone has equal opportunity? I just feel like, mm-hmm. what a farce, right? Um, like me and Mad Blender made a video about this. But yeah, basically, especially under neoliberalism or especially under moves to quote unquote free the markets and make them more competitive the more you remove regulations that redistribute wealth and help people get on that same level playing field, such as education, such as healthcare, such as food. um, Yeah. The more you take that away, the less of an equal playing field it becomes. And so it's like this equal opportunity is just, Oh, it's such a terrible trope. It's such a dangerous thing that so many people believe and I'm like how can you believe that you can just look around and see that this is not 
the way that the world works, you know? Mm-hmm. I wanted to also plug in a really great episode called The High Cost of Being Poor by the Vegan Warrior Princesses Attack. Yes. Where they, oh, such a good episode. Oh, that's like my favorite episode. <laughs> it's so good. Where they really outline actually all of the systems that are in place to keep poor people poor and how much more expensive it is to obtain like basic services when you're poor than when you're even middle class like mm-hmm. um i remember nicole talking about having to rent hotel rooms by the week because they don't actually ask for like a credit card deposit mm-hmm. um so you know you're able to you're able to rent a room by the by the week but that's actually more expensive or you know when you have to buy food like meal by meal that's more expensive than having staple like big amounts of staples that you can just like cook up a batch of like rice or and beans or something and eat off of like one or two dollars a meal for a very long time um which is actually something that vegans say a lot um but it's like not everyone has a stove which again i'm totally crediting uh that podcast for just like mm-hmm. enlightening me about yeah um but yeah, not only does not everyone have the tools to cook those foods, but also um, they end up having to buy little portion-sized things, um, which co- which costs more money. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and in that same episode, they talked about um, like the banking system and how like oh yeah, <laughs> like you can't buy anything unless you have a you know, an account and a, and a credit card and whatever, but that like the fees are ridiculous that you have to pay and that they will penalize you. Like if you're already poor, um, and let's say like you're waiting for your paycheck to come in and you have to pay something or they just charge you these fees automatically. And if they charge you a fee and you, you get, um, your account is overdrawn, then you have to pay even more you know what I mean it's like they charge you and then like your your account just just like gets growing in debt and debt and debt because like the more that you can't pay the more they'll slap on fees for you know overdrafting or being overdrawn in your account so you're just Mm -hmm. like how what am I supposed to do here I can't you know it's just absolutely ridiculous so I heard the other day that New York City was planning to become a cash-free city by, like, 2020. I don't know if that's actually true, but there's more and more places where you can't... You know, before it used to be that you would try to pay a low amount in card and they would say, you know, there's a 10 or $15 minimum. Mm-hmm. But now, increasingly, you can't pay by, like, using cash, even for really small sums of money. So I've just been thinking about like, what is that going to mean for people who don't have like credit or debit cards? You know, what if now to get a $2 meal somewhere, you have to have a credit card because you can't pay with cash. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like that is just another, that is just an ultimate prescription to actually purge everyone that doesn't, that is not wealthy enough to yeah, have like a credit card, but you that's know, like or a bank account. So sad and scary. Like, what's going to happen to people so living scary. on the street? Yeah. Wow. But even like even on top of the fact that it'll be terrible for people on the street, like the, moving to a totally cashless society, I feel like it just gets us deeper and deeper into this world of you know 
credit money that's just fake. Yeah. <laughs> it like it's just really just um what's completely it just does not like literally does not correspond to anything yeah it's just like this artificial made-up thing that you can just like multiply and have in your little secret accounts it's just it just messes me up honestly but i know that wasn't very articulate but i think you know what i'm saying (laughs) oh i absolutely do (laughs) um so i just wanted to add that you know just just as there's no equality of opportunity under capitalism between like individuals of a given nation, there's also no free competition between nations. Um, And I guess I just kind of made a video about this looking at structural adjustment, but, you know, even stemming from like colonialism, um, moving through to neocolonialism and imperialism, um and structural adjustment there's really no no free competition between nations like the global market has been set up in such a way um as to make certain nations completely subservient to other nations um through debt basically mm-hmm. yeah so i guess i'll just link my video <laughs> in the show notes so you can learn more about that Neoliberalism is the belief that market ideology should apply to absolutely everything and that competition will make all sectors more efficient and that all sectors should be submitted to the rules of like profit, of, ex- of demand and exchange. Um, and so in, well, in all industries, this has perverse effect, but especially um, in industries like um well nonprofits and the healthcare and education industry which have become like which have become industries that are governed for profit and that are privatized so there's a lot to say about the education and the healthcare sector um i'm going to focus on nonprofits today um but just the sheer fact that um in the United States, health costs are the number one reasons that people file for bankruptcy. Um, I know that they're the number one cause in the U.S., but I'm sure they're not far behind in a lot of other industrialized nations. But um, the fact that it's that the medical industry has become such a profitable business in the pharmaceutical industry, etc., that it's literally causing people to go bankrupt, and it's the number one mm-hmm. reason that they go bankrupt. Um, and the educative system is also just abhorrent. Um, mm-hmm. I'm talking especially about the United States, but I mean, this le- neoliberal model is being like disseminated everywhere. Um, and it's actually coming to France more and more. Um, but yes, this, you, this idea that education should be a for-profit business and that if every school is like a privatized company, then they're going to compete with each other and they're going to become more and more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has actually led to the complete deterioration of like the public school system and even like more preposterous rates of inequality um, in education. And actually standardized tests are also like part and parcel um, of the neoliberalization of schooling because schools have to get, basically the kids in the school have to get 
high scores at um, standardized tests. And according to their scores, they get a certain level of funding by the government and by foundations. So more and more education is amounting to teaching and training kids to be good at test taking rather than learn for the sake of like learning and learn actual knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think standardized tests like the SATs and the ACTs are completely a part of that. Um, and I, I should know because I teach them. Um, you really, there's a bunch of tricks basically that you can learn to do the, to do really well on the test, but the kids aren't actually learning knowledge like they're learning how to fill in bubbles and how to be strategic about it Mm -hmm. um how to rule out certain options and how to get certain clues with like from within the tests that is going to obtain them the right solution but they're not actually learning anything and they spent a tremendous amount of time training for it and for kids in like wealthier better schools um that's only the SATs is only like a small part of their curriculum Mm -hmm. and it's actually outside of the classroom taught outside of the classroom but for kids you know that rely on um on these scores in order to get greater funding like literally test taking is what their entire education is about and mm-hmm. it's just really really sad it's so funny like i like in my school in my high school um like we had the gifted program obviously um and so it was kind of the same like we i did like i only knew this because i was one of the the top students in i used to take um math and sciences that's like what i went into originally um and cuz i would get really good grades there but i didn't even really like math and science that much but my um what's it called my my guidance counselor basically funneled me into these courses and like chose my courses for me because um yeah there was a number of tests that we had to take and you know we wanted to look the best that we could or not we but the school wanted to look the best that they could so that's why it's like if you are good at math and science then you should take these things and take these tests so that our school looks better and I ended up obviously changing out of that in university like I wasted like a year of university being like I don't actually like this but I was forced into it because they were like you're very good at this and you should Mm. you should take it but it was basically for their selfish interesting (laughs) right (laughs) right (laughs) yeah (laughs) and um yeah I mean I'm glad that you didn't keep taking them, but that's really not surprising. I mean, kids have, especially in lower income schools, like a tremendous amount of pressure to do well on tests like the ERBs in middle school. I'm I'm speaking again uh, of the United States, but in order to like get funding to like have a fucking whiteboard in their classroom, you know, like Mm -hmm. (sighs) anyway. Um, But the nonprofit sector is also, you know, doing good and doing charity has now become. have become I mean they're completely um like subservient to the rules of the market um and you know so I'm not just criticizing it for the the sake of criticizing it if it actually if like the proliferation of NGOs was actually helping global inequality um I wouldn't be criticizing the liberal model but it, Mm -hmm. it it isn't So the proliferation of NGOs really started taking off um, in the late 1970s when neoliberal ideals really um, started becoming the norm. Um, And so today there are, 
you know, to give you an idea, there are approximately 10 million NGOs. This is reported by the Global Journal. I just couldn't believe this number because in the late 1970s, there was, I mean, nowhere near that number. You know, maybe there was like a couple thousand or something. It is just the the proliferation of NGOs has been one of the most notable changes of the past, like, 30 or 40 years. Um, mm-hmm. And if you listen to liberal um, political scientists, they would say that the, the, the increase in NGOs in and of itself is a good thing. They think, they say that it is, well, it will lead to greater competition and therefore greater efficiency amongst them. And also it's a sign of a strong civil society to have so many different kinds of NGOs um, mm-hmm. and also so many NGOs that are competing, I mean, that are treating the same issues. Um, and it was a part of when when it really, when NGOs really started being the main uh, bodies responsible for social welfare, it was also a part of absolving the state of its social responsibility to actually be accountable for poverty and for lower rates of education and of health, etc. And it now became the job of NGOs that were for profit that competed to get the funds to treat those social issues. Um, Mm -hmm. I always think it's it's interesting because in like we notice here that the state reaps all of the benefits of ridding itself of its social responsibilities because it's obviously saving costs, but it Mm -hmm. incurs none of the costs. So, you know, even though it's like leading towards like a downward spiral of the quality of life of so, so many people, the state, since it's absolved from its responsibility to promote any sort of social equity, it doesn't reflect badly on it if people are just doing horribly. You know, it's like, well, now NGOs just should be doing a better job or like it's the reason to create yet another one. Yeah, exactly. Like we call this, um, like we call that flanking, a flanking mechanism under neoliberalism, where it basically facilitates the rollback of the state and the privatization of, um, you know, servicing the public. Um, And what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So, um, and like we talk about this, I took a class on radical food politics. And um, we talked about this a lot in terms of like charities and like food banks, etc. And how like on the one hand, obviously, it's like very important. um, And you know, it's it's a good thing that communities are organizing and trying to think about alternative ways to to provide food security. It's also inherently neoliberal and like, you know, damaging in the long run, because all it does is create the idea or like encourage the idea that like the state shouldn't be responsible for food security and that, you know, it should be just, you know, if wealthy people feel like donating, then, you know, that's, that's good. And if they don't, you know, they don't have to, but it's just kind of left to this, like, well, wealthy people can donate and then that'll help the problem. You know what I mean? Not realizing that okay how are they getting their money in the first place it's through exploitation of land and labor so it's like them trying to throw money back at the problem and they're not they're not um you know they're not responsible for doing that so if they don't want to they don't have to right Mm -hmm. um at this point if all the ngos were a country they would have the fifth biggest gdp and nearly one in three people worldwide donate to a charity um this was actually in 2015 and 
one out of four people volunteered. So I'm sure those stats are even, maybe they're even like more telling today. Um, But so it's really not that people are just like not generous or not interested um, or don't donate money because the numbers show that they do. Um, However, there's something that must be, there's something that must be going on, right? If this network of NGOs is so rich, is so powerful and has so many people like looped into it, yet they're not able to make a change. Mm -hmm. And the fact, the fact that these NGOs have, the fact that these NGOs are so reliant on donor money is a huge part of why they're not able to be effective um, because ultimately they're still relying on the people that have the most money in order to make the change. So obviously the, you know, the people with the money are not going to donate to initiatives that are going to radically change the structure that made them wealthy in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, most NGOs get their money from foundations and foundations are, um, things that are created by incredibly wealthy people usually to avoid paying higher levels of taxes. So again, this is in the United States. I'm not sure what the numbers are for other countries, but I think it's above $500,000 a year. If you're getting above that number, then you're taxed at a certain very high rate. Maybe it's 90%. Um, so what very wealthy people who make more than that have to do is, you know, to put all their money in a, in a foundation so that they won't get taxed on it. And then that foundation um, gives money to NGOs, but it's still ultimately like a ruse to pay less taxes. Like, not that I'm saying that all rich people are evil and that all these foundations um, come from like malintent, but I guess I'm just like saying saying things how like saying it how it is um so ngos have to compete for funds um which is actually really destructive to their mission to do good because um and this is actually coming from a article which i read in college that really got me thinking called the ngo scramble organizational insecurity and the political economy of transnational action And fun fact, I actually took a class with the professor uh, who wrote this. Um, It was super interesting. But basically, the article goes into great detail about how the fact that there are more and more NGOs actually leads to more competition instead of cooperation amongst themselves. And that is inherently destructive for their mission. So, for example, if they... Um, are trying to work on the ground like in a in another country to alleviate hunger political instability or whatever Um, the fact that they're trying to set targets that are going to be appealing to donors and they're also trying to prove to donors that they're going to have the best return on their investment by donating to their organization makes them compete with the other organizations that are on the ground Mm -hmm. Um, another perverse effect that this for-profit model has is that a lot of organizations will rush to humanitarian hotspots, they're called. So um, humanitarian issues that are getting a lot of attention at that time where there's a lot of people wanting to invest money in it because it's getting a lot of, you know, media attention, you know, for example, some kind of earthquake or um, anyway, uh, something that's an issue that's getting a lot of attention that's going to get a lot of funds. So it drives people to 
It drives NGOs to coalesce around certain issues in order to get more funds. It also makes them spend a tremendous amount of time on marketing and on grant writing and on fundraising um, in order to get the money that they need in order to carry out their work. Yeah, so like you were talking about before about foundations, um, but I actually work in like environmental with environmental issues or whatever, and um, a lot of the donors of the big environmental NGOs are like Shell Oil and like are like you know what I mean. It's it's these huge destructive yeah. extractive companies that are donating because they want to improve their PR. Like obviously they get a lot of criticism for being shitty to the environment. So yeah, when you institutionalize and you know privatize these services you know like ngo work which is not really a service it's kind of like you're you're trying to make social change when you make that privatized and put people into a competition with one another then yeah you're you're gonna end up getting into bed with really terrible people just so that you can have all that funding but then of course that means you're not going to be funding change that's like very transformative at all so you kind of lock yourself into this okay well we have the funding to do stuff now but our donors are going to pull out if we do anything that's actually transformative or radical right that would actually change something exactly <laughs> right um and yeah that just it makes me sad and mad the fact that when I read that quote of one in three people donate to NGOs, I feel like it's just really taking advantage of people's good intentions. Um, but that it's really important for people in the West to understand that aid is not justice and that ultimately seeking any sort of justice would like anything short of like a massive transfer of wealth and of reparations and like debt cancellation mm -hmm. is not is like peanuts right mm -hmm. it's not um it's it's not by just giving money to NGOs and it's not by like individual NGOs coming like going into countries and trying to make a difference with western dollars mm -hmm. that we're actually going to achieve any sort of justice because we are profiting so much from their poverty and you know this capitalist system is completely parasitic the the fact that the west is rich and the fact that the west is able to help these poorer countries is part and parcel of the fact that these um quote unquote, poor countries are poor. Um, and we keep stealing all of their resources and we have for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, this liberalization of NGOs is, uh, it's really ironic. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Like, uh, again, I kind of work with like conservation and development around the world. And that's kind of one of the main issues here is that, all of these things that we're trying to do are just like very, they're band-aid solutions. They're not even solutions, actually. They're just, you know, band-aids that marginally make things a bit better. Um, but they ultimately fail to actually, you know, produce development or sustainable development at all, because none of them are actually targeting the real problem, which is political economy so unless we're going to actually take aim at the global capitalist system and especially the global neoliberal system and all these structural adjustment programs that you know are continuing to force third world nations into poverty 
then we're not going to actually get anywhere in terms of either sustainability or development. And so that's the thing. It's like, it's not going to make any change because what's driving this problem in the first place is never addressed. Absolutely. So France in particular has benefited from colonial debt in Africa for such a long time. So um, Togo and about 13 other African countries still today have to pay colonial debt to France. And oh my God. yeah, no, it's wild. It's estimated that France now holds nearly $500,000 billion of African countries' money in its treasury and will do absolutely anything to keep it um oh my god because these 14 countries must deposit its national monetary reserves into france's central bank and they've been doing so since 1961 so yeah um and african african leaders who refuse are killed um or are victims of some kind of coup and those who obey are supported and rewarded by france with lavish lifestyles uh while their people endure extreme poverty and desperation. So, and the UN has, like, asked France to stop its program of colonial debt a lot of times. Not that, you know, I'm a huge fan of the UN because ultimately I do think it's, like, an imperialist organization, obviously. Um, but it, But there have been, like, France knows that, like, there have been a lot of calls to ask France to stop doing this, but this program of colonial debt is still in place today. Um, And Mm. so I really do roll my eyes when I see all these organizations here um, trying to help Africa. Actually, I was part of an organization (laughs) called Go To Togo when I was in high school, like selling t-shirts and doing bake sales to um, try and cure hunger in Togo. And then, you know, here I'm learning that Togo has actually been paying money to France since 1961. It's just like... <laughs> like, colonial debt, shouldn't France be paying? No, no, yeah, that that's their... <laughs> no, that's almost the worst part, is the reason for colonial debt is, you know, according to the French, to thank them and pay them back for all of the wonderful infrastructure that they installed when they colonized African nations. So it's not... Yeah, no, colonial debt, It's the rhetoric behind it is to, like just pay France back for, you know, how there's still this myth in France that like we allowed Africa to like have a a middle class and all of this infrastructure. I mean, it's fucking wild. That is so terrible. (laughs) And actually I talk about this in my video that is going to come out soon, but I have not managed to edit it even though it's been (laughs) way too long. Um, But that actually the tunnels that they installed in Africa created this perfect breeding ground for mosquitoes um, and is a huge (laughs) reason why malaria has not been like stamped out because, you know, essentially you're creating these canals that are dark, that are humid, that are warm, um, that just create like a perfect environment for these like diseased mosquitoes to keep reproducing. Um, so yeah, not only are they paying France colonial debt to like thank them for building these wonderful canals, but they're also just like dying by, I think like 10 million a year in that, in like the continent of Africa because of malaria. I mean, that is so disgusting. So disgusting. Oh my God, that makes my head spin. I've seen people on Twitter say like similar things, like centrists saying, saying like, 
oh, the, the colonized country should be thanking the colonizers. And I'm just like, I want to scream. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the fact that they need money to make their operation operations run just uh, perpetuates the myth that it's the people with the most money that are going to do the, the most amount of good for society. Mm-hmm. Because right. if, you know... It takes $2 to cure malaria and it takes $30 to, uh, you know, put a kid through school in Africa or something like that. Like mm-hmm. all these flashy targets that you hear, then the people who are actually benefiting most off of this system of inequality are able to do the most good if we listen to this model because they're able to donate the most money. Right, exactly. And like I talk about this, I talked about this in my capitalism in the environment video, but the idea that we can just throw money back at a problem, like money that was produced, you know, a problem that was Uh, yeah, yeah, a problem that was produced through capitalist accumulation, the fact that we can take that accumulated money and throw it back at the problem that was produced through capitalist accumulation is absolutely self-defeating. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Like you cannot fight capitalism with capitalism. Capitalism cannot be the answer to its own contradictions. So yeah, (laughs) that's basically that. Yep. Case closed. Yeah. Case closed. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So yeah, and I mean, even like the idea like capitalism can't be the answer to its own contradictions. Um, People have a very like skewed view of capitalism and competition. Um, Like I'm thinking of the idea of perfect competition, which is prevalent in neoclassical economics. Um, I'm going to point everyone, I'm going to link it in the show notes, but Anwar Shaikh does amazing lectures about this. So please go watch them. Um, I've also made a video about this, about how competition actually leads to monopoly under capitalism or oligopoly or whatnot. Um, but yeah, so this idea of perfect competition and like equilibrium is just so it's based on nothing, right? So the classical economists like Adam Smith, Ricardo and Marx, who actually have a lot more in common than people give them credit for, um, they developed their theories by looking at how capitalism actually functioned on the ground. So they were looking at actual businesses and then building their theories off of actual businesses. Whereas neoclassical economists they're starting from the point of like, let's imagine the most ideal system where everything is perfectly competitive, everything is in perfect equilibrium, and then we'll create models out of that. And then anything that deviates from this is considered an aberration or is considered imperfect competition or is considered, you know, any, uh, any deviation from this perfect model is like, oh, well, the state must be too involved then, right? Um, even though this perfect model... <laughs> It, we've never witnessed it. It's, it's um, you know, highly unlikely that we ever will. Um, so anyway, I, I'll just point everyone to Anwar Scheich to go check that out. Um, so yeah, I mean, and capitalism, competition, if we free the market, competition leads to monopoly anyway. It leads to, you know, each 
each company wants to secure the biggest portion of the market share. And so the big fish eat the little fish. That's how it goes. And we end up with oligopoly for the most part. Um, and then in that situation, price competition is really not a thing anymore. Um, Schumpeter calls this co-respective pricing where, you know, big monopolistic firms, they recognize that they have nothing to gain from entering into like a price war with other competitors. And so they basically, you know, indirectly or directly collude in setting prices. Um, and, you know, if they do engage in competition to increase their overall profits, um, one of the main ways that they do this is they cut their costs. So they like that has devastating effects, as we know, for labor and the environment, um, particularly in a liberalized global economy. It just ends up as a complete race to the bottom in terms of, you know, working conditions, income um, environmental conditions, etc. So the more we try to make the markets fairly competitive, the more of a race to the bottom it is. Mm -hmm. And we see that as well with, with trade deregulation, where certain countries, like their, their competitive advantage is the fact that they will pay their workers the least and they will not put in any environmental protections. And this is a direct result of competition and the need, you know, any capitalist, no matter how, you know, socially or environmentally progressive they want to be at the end of the day has to stay competitive. And to do that, to increase your profits, you know, the two ways are to cut costs on labor or cut costs uh, on your resources or, you know, through environmental cutting of costs. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just it amounts to race to the bottom everywhere you turn. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to end by speaking about the trope of competition as it's seen in the animal kingdom or as it's thought of in the animal kingdom. Um, and this comes from the extremely prevalent view of like Darwinian competition um, that basically evolution is only premised on like survival of the fittest mm -hmm. um, or premise, I should say governed rather than premised on um, survival of the fittest and that it's through ruthless competition and struggle and fighting um, that species are able to survive and uh, they're able to evolve. And there are many brilliant people who have advanced a very compelling case for the fact that cooperation rather than competition is the most important law of nature, um, or that it's at least as important as competition. So uh, Peter Kropotkin, I always have a hard time saying <laughs> Kropotkin. <laughs> I tried to say it with a straight face, but Maxie's heard me struggle with this. Um, who was a Russian anarchist geographer strongly objected to the Hobbesian notion of competition um, that intense fighting basically defined the evolution of all species including human and including humans sorry and he notably argued this in a book called Mutual Aid where he documented instances of cooperation in nature so I'm going to read a quote from his book. 
Um, he says, as soon as we study animals, not in laboratories and museums only, but in forests and the prairie, in the steep and the mountain, we at once perceive that though there is an immense amount of warfare and extermination going on amidst various species, and especially amidst various classes of animals, there is, at the same time, as much or perhaps even more mutual support, mutual aid, and mutual defense amidst animals belonging to the same species, or at least to the same society. And later he argues, um, but if we resort to an indirect test and ask nature, who are the fittest, those who are continually at war with each other or those who support one another, we at once see that those animals which acquire habits of mutual aid are undoubtedly the fittest, end quote. Mm -hmm. So this pattern of cooperation can be observed pretty much absolutely everywhere um, in insect species, mammals, in fish, um, and there are really, there's a really cool article, which uh, we'll link in the show notes, um, that that shows 20 different examples of like really amazing cooperation found in nature um, and also documenting the democratic stru structures that a lot of herds of animals adopt in order to make decisions. So for example, one that I thought was really cool um, is the red deer of Eurasia that lives in large herds and spends lots of time, lots of time either grazing or lying down to ruminate. And they move obviously from place to place um, but some deer are ready to move before others and scientists have noticed that herds only move when 60% of the adults have stood up so essentially they're voting with their feet and I heard of another example unfortunately I wasn't able to um, find the direct passage but I am pretty sure I read this in um, Kropotkin's mutual aid, um, that deer, in order to make decisions, usually, um, well, well, some species will arrange themselves in a circle and tilt their head in order to vote one way or the other, and that the decision is not implemented by the herd until at least 51%, like more than half of, like, yeah, at least 51% of the deer tilt their head a certain way. Um, so it's like super, super democratic and egalitarian. So cool. Um, <laughs> it's so fucking cute too. Just imagining them doing it just like makes me lose it. Just imagine. But it also it makes me like, oh my gosh, they're having a little like council committee meeting. Like this is, you know, this is wild. I know. Yeah. Um, and it's just... We're fed this idea that we're hardwired to be individualistic and to be like, to be selfish, um, and that's how we're gonna obtain the most gain, and that is the natural rule of of the world, absolutely everywhere, and that's just not true. Mm -hmm. um, also, trees communicate with each other um, with through their roots. Like, there's an entire network um, of connections, like under the forest floor like mm -hmm. floor should I call it floor like ground whatever um where like trees let themselves know if there's a certain kind of predator or if there's like a certain type of insect um that's more prevalent than at other times in the forest so if they should like develop certain types of like enzymes and I don't know all this like really cool shit where 
just like these examples in nature are everywhere and so yeah like yeah even if you think about like wolves like hunting as a pack or like dogs or whatever um totally yeah or when you think about like birds who have special calls to tell each other when there's a predator around Mm -hmm. and you know different you know strategies to confuse predators etc it's just yeah you know yeah cooperation is the rule and not the exception yeah I just really like I try to yeah I wonder what the world would be like today if that was the belief that we were instilled with Mm -hmm. you know and like other communities haven't been as like chronically selfish as we have you know there's like examples of that also throughout history for sure um, which I think you were going to talk about next. Quickly. Yeah, um, like I was going to talk about Eleanor Ostrom and her work looking at, you know, the fact that even in humans, cooperation and not competition is the rule when we look at, you know, communities that are managing common resources and communities that are living, you know, maybe closer to the land or, or whatnot. Um, and I talked about this in my Tragedy of the Commons video, so I'll link that below so people can check it out. But um, yeah, she found that all over cooperation and the common managing of resources was far more prevalent um, than competition because it just doesn't make sense, you know, right. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. Whereas if we listen to like le- neoliberal economics, they will swear that that actually never happens mm-hmm. because that is counter to people's like hardwired way of being and their self-interest it's just like dude are you like looking at reality yeah but also it's like that comes from a very particular cultural bias where in north america especially like in western civilization we are taught that from birth and so it's like this isn't some innate thing it's it's a very much a learned behavior that we learn in our societies but not all societies operate that way like I've spent a lot of Mm -hmm. a lot of time researching in northern Thailand and um, working with you know quote-unquote hill tribes that's actually like a derogatory term but like ethnic minorities there and their whole understanding of you know the nature of society binary their whole understanding of cooperation versus competition is completely different um mm-hmm. and so yeah of course we think here in the west where everything is hyper competitive that this is just an innate thing but it's because we've been brought up this way you know um and you all you have to do is look around the world and see that it's not a universal trait of every society to understand that this is a learned behavior and we can you know we're not just a slave to this you know we can open our eyes and decide to choose a different path and you know like we don't it's not like we're just we have no capacity to critically think about this and change our behaviors absolutely and I feel like that ties in so intimately with the myth of scarcity which Mm -hmm. is a whole other can of worms that we will not Mm -hmm. get into right now um, but this belief that there is just not enough for everyone to have their share and for everyone to survive. And like competition would essentially have no, I feel like it would have no power if there wasn't also this underlying myth that like the resources need to be competed for because there isn't every like enough for everyone to go around. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I brought this up in, in our last episode, but 
there's actually enough food in the world being produced for everyone to have at least 2,500 calories per day, but it's just not being distributed. Um, right. It's being distributed privately. I mean, half of it is being wasted and thrown out and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So yeah, it is the myth of scarcity is just, blah. and yeah, that definitely ties yeah. into competition because um, yeah, like inequality is justified because of this idea that resources are so scarce, so we have to compete for them. So right, yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I think Maxie and I are pretty tired. I'm from... like, yeah, I'm very tired. Um, yeah, but I'm also like, like is... listeners don't know the whole backstory. <laughs> we had a lot of, of technical problems trying to. Oh my goodness. <laughs> trying to record this episode yeah record this episode yeah um we're so far yeah um I really like how it's turned out but it's it's also just a very heavy topic because like it just makes me very frustrated to think about and then especially when Mm -hmm. when I get into arguments like the one I got into with my uber driver and people are just so convinced of the opposite like he was going on about how yeah like he thinks that education should be totally privatized and moved to a charter system and I'm just like what like also it's like ironic because uber and this like is like fucking him over so badly I know yeah it it was just um it's just hard to handle because I just I I want to feel like you know, things are changing and and progressing and that like, I'm making a positive difference. But like, if I can't even convince like my Uber driver, who's making these terrible arguments, you know, I'm just like, well, this, these are the people that are populating my city, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah. And and the people that are being like harmed really badly by this myth of competition. I know. Whereas like, so disgusting. Right. And like, they're seeking to make it even worse. And I'm like, if you get your way, then things are going to be worse for me too, because then I'm not gonna be able to access education and healthcare or anything. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Anyway. 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 Good episode, girl. (laughs) Good episode, girl. We did it. We did it. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I guess. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, we'd love to hear what you think. So leave us a comment. Um, I also just want to say, if you like the show, please consider sharing this episode with your friends um, and also leaving us a review and a rating on iTunes or whatever app you are listening to this on. We would really appreciate that. Yes. And also you can donate to our Patreon. Yeah, so we'd very much like to thank our two Patreons that have donated since the last episode. So exciting. So a very special thank you to Sarah Colley and to Revolutionary Spectre for your very generous donations. For believing in baby Marine and Maxine. Yes, yeah. So and the baby vegan vanguard. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone else would like to contribute and show their support for the show, you can also become a patron. Um, or we also accept one-time donations via PayPal. So on that note. on that note i guess we should go i guess we should go so thank you very much for listening and we will see you all in two weeks yep yep bye yep all right bye